1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 102 being recorded on Wednesday, October 4th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back,
0: Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, fall is go time in retail. And I was looking and, uh, you know, it's going by so quickly that you and I have been so busy We did our listener appreciation event, we had Indochino, uh, and it turns out we have not done e-commerce news and analysis since early September. So here in episode 102, this is going to be kind of a quick hit of some of the news that's come out in the last 30 days uh, so kind of mid to late September that we thought uh, maybe many of the listeners are experiencing the fall like we are, where you're so heads down getting ready for that critical holiday season. You'd want us to help parse through and, and figure out what are the nuggets of what has come out in the last 15 or 20 days. Uh, so we're going to focus on those. Um, two of the nuggets are really trip reports. And on both of these, I have to admit uh, maya culpa to our listeners uh, epic fail really I did not make it to either of these events And I'd planned to go to both So the first was Recode And that was in New York And the second one was Shop.org in Los Angeles And I had a variety of things So a Hurricane kind of kept me from the first one And then on the second one Just scheduling conflicts between you and I And, and a couple of things on the uh, on my other day job side Kept me from going there So I am on the edge of my chair To hear from you how those two events went
1: yeah, and let me first start by saying, uh, for the listeners that were uh, participating in the pool, Scott played the hurricane card at 1 minute 40 seconds into the episode. So, uh, so congratulations to whoever won that. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's so much going on, I feel like we're going to have to go fast. So, this is probably a 20 pounds in the 10 pound bag episode. Um, let's jump right into Recode, or uh, Code Commerce, more, more technically. Uh, so, for listeners that don't know... Uh, Recode is a great uh, publication. They have a very famous show on the West Coast every year called um, uh, Code. And uh, the, more recently, they've launched a series of events that were specific to commerce. And most of those events lived on top of another commerce event. So they would have a, a dinner and a few speakers at... Uh, a shop talk show or uh, NRF or one of, one of those sorts of events. And they've all been great events. Um, so this was their first effort to turn it into a standalone event. It was a day and a half um, just dedicated to uh, uh, speakers that they lined up in New York Um, And for a first-year show, I think it was really successful. They had a pretty good turnout. Uh, All the logistics seemed to work out uh, pretty well. And as is usually the calling card for these code events, they were able to get some pretty impressive speakers that, you know, I was interested to listen to. Um, so because of time, we're not going to be able to cover all of them. Um, but, but really quickly, uh, a guy I always look forward to hearing from is Andy Dunn, who's the founder of Bonobos. They were purchased, uh, this year by Walmart. Um, so he had a good, good conversation with Jason Del Rey. Uh, you know, uh, uh a lot of the, the usual ground that was covered talking about like digitally native brands and, uh, how how bullish Andy is on those, and talking about how life is uh, living inside of Walmart and the cultural challenges uh, that exist there. Um, Andy is a guy that uh, is is very bullish on the omni channel experience, and so living inside of Walmart and having access to their stores was uh, he felt like Net Net was a pretty big advantage. Um, and so you know, I, I thought like he was well worth listening to. Uh, a little later in day one, uh, we had the CEO of uh, of William Sonoma, Laura Alper. Um, you know, uh, great brand, great CEO. Uh, I was a little disappointed uh, at uh, in her comments at a digital show. She did not come off uh, super digitally savvy, if I'm being frank. Um, and it's interesting because William Sonoma is a Traditional retailer always relied on the catalog. They embraced digital early. And, you know, today more than half of their sales are online. And she spent the whole time talking about how stores were a differentiator and how how important the in-store experience was. Um, and how, you know, they sold a lot of categories that they felt like people just didn't want to buy online. Um, and I think furniture was specifically one. And while, like, I absolutely think there's a huge competitive advantage to a store experience, and I think it's super important to honor those stores, it it sounded like a little bit uh, like one of the old CEOs defending their investment in stores against the onslaught of Amazon. Um, and that just seemed surprising coming from the CEO of a, a retailer that's been so successful in digital. I would have thought she'd maybe be a little more, more uh, balanced and nuanced. And she, she's just seemed to be a strong advocate for the stores. Uh, so at the end of that day one, there was kind of an interesting joint presentation, um, with Adam Silver, who's, uh, the NBA commissioner and, uh, the, uh, uh, A famous guy in our industry, uh, Mike Rubin, who's uh, the executive chairman of Fanatics. Uh, He also happens to be one of the owners of the 76ers and uh, uh, famously started a a number of uh, successful companies in our space, including GSI and ShopRunner, and uh, I think was even on an episode of Undercover Boss. Um, So Mike Rubin's one of the most successful guys in e-commerce, so it's always super interesting to hear from him. You know, he's talking about fanatics, which is made to order, uh, jerseys online. Uh, I, I think that's a super interesting category because I do think, um, personalization is a a big up and coming play in, uh, uh, digital and in retail. I think we're going to see a lot more products personalized. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot we can er er learn from an early player like fanatics. Um, it was a little funny seeing the two of them on stage together, uh, because, you know, Mike Rubin is very anti-Amazon and talking about how they compete against Amazon. He mentioned that that Amazon tried to do the custom jerseys for the NBA before Fanatics took it over and wasn't successful. And, you know, the implication being that it was too hard for Amazon, but Fanatics was able to make it it, it work at scale. Um, And, I, you know, I think there's there was a lot of interesting insights there and. You know, he's sitting next to the commissioner of the NBA who's saying, hey, Amazon's a super important partner, and we're going to let you buy any of the jerseys you want customized on Amazon, and essentially Amazon's going to be an affiliate for Fanatics. So, um, you know, wh- while Michael was talking about how Fanatics had a differentiated experience from Amazon, uh, Adam Silver was saying, but if you prefer Amazon or you're a Prime member, you can you can get anything that Fanatic sells straight, you know, that's licensed by us straight from uh, – from uh, Amazon, and we we understand that we need to be there because they're a big player. And the the fall to that is, you know, Amazon outpunches their weight as a retailer uh, in terms of mind share with with folks like Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, because you know there's there's a realization that Amazon is a content publisher, and you know one day could own. Uh, the rights to broadcast NBA games, and uh, certainly, you know, already has the rights to broadcast some some NFL games now, and and so you know, it's an interesting dynamic talking about like the retailer and the content publisher, and you're sitting there next to Michael Rubin, who's a retailer and an NBA owner. So it was kind of a a, a convoluted set of uh, of interrelated issues, but but I found it fascinating.
0: Cool. That's uh definitely a, a whirlwind tour. Uh, the did you get to uh, stalk Andy Dunn much at all?
1: I, I did not. I left him alone. Um, I, I will say props to Jason Delray. You know this is uh, he's the the reporter at, at Rico that specializes in commerce. So this is really his event. He, I thought he did a bunch of inter- good interviews day one, but I think he was also getting kind of. Um, Unfortunately, I think he was under the weather, so I think he was a trooper, and most impressively, he's a huge, uh, long-suffering Knicks fan, and I sort of expected him to just have a lot of Knicks questions for, for Adam Silver, and he totally refrained from any personal comments. So so props to, to uh, uh, a previous guest on our show, Jason Delray, for doing a good job. Um, even shorter updates... Uh Tim Kendall who's the president of Pinterest was on. I thought he was really smart and it was interesting like you know he talked about how he thinks a, a small minority of people on the Pinterest platform want to conduct a commerce transaction on his platform. Um and that's fascinating because most people would talk about Pinterest having the highest buying intent of any of the social networks and he's flat out saying most people don't want to see a buy button on Pinterest, he's like, you know, we have shoppable pins; uh, they're increasingly successful. Um, but in most cases, what customers want is to get inspiration on Pinterest, and then they want to go to the e-commerce site to actually consummate the purchase. And so that that was interesting. Um, you know, there for for many years there have been a lot of folks out there talking about how you know traditional e-commerce sites might not even exist as all the purchases move to. Facebook and Google and, and, uh, Pinterest. And here's the president of, of the one that's supposed to be most successful. And he's saying, Hey, you know, that doesn't seem to be what our customers want to do. Um, so I thought that was super interesting. And then, uh, day two, uh, they moved the venue to, uh, Hudson yard, which is a, a, a really interesting new multi-use development going up in New York. That's going to include a lot of retail. It's going to have an Amazon bookstore, um, and they did a bunch of on-site uh, opportunities. so you could go tour the the newest Nike town, um, you could visit a couple uh, digital startups and one of the options was to visit uh, an Amazon Prime Now fulfillment center uh, that's in Manhattan on 34th Street. Um, and so I'm sad to say I did not get to go on the tour. it signed it booked up really quick. Um, but I did hear from a few folks that went on them. And you know, as a reminder, is got reminded me right before the show. There's 45 of these Prime Now facilities. Um, out there, and they're they're designed to hold the smaller assortment of stuff that people want in, in one day, and they do the one- or two-hour delivery. Uh, so this one in Manhattan is right in the heart of Midtown. It's on 34th Street, which is a storied retail street. It's across the street from the Empire State Building. It's on the same street as the largest Macy's in the world. Um, and what a lot of people were surprised by when they walked in this facility is uh, there were a bunch of pickers running around pulling stuff out of bins, and there was almost no automation um, in the the facility at all, and I and you know most of the attendees expected to see a bunch of Kiva robots or you know at least some sort of automated picking system. And what apparently they were told is uh, that at the moment, like every one of these facilities is a different configuration, and that it's still too early in the evolution of this concept um, for Amazon to cost effectively scale it with automation. And so. I, I just found that interesting that they've already got 45 of them out there and in their world, uh, that that's not enough yet to automate it and that, that uh, you know, the, these things, you know, I, I have a lot of clients that have automated fulfillment centers for e-commerce that, that looked a lot more advanced than apparently this thing did. Hmm, very did that cool. surprise you at all? Uh, I think given the, where that offering is not its life
0: cycle it doesn't so so amazon always kind of starts from the customer and works their way back and, and what that means is you're okay being inefficient on the back end as long as you can still deliver a great customer experience or you know i, I would say they've probably put the the bulk of their effort, like 70% of their effort into the front end and the front end is getting better all the time. And you can tell they're just like really iterating that super quickly. Uh, for example, when they closed the whole food foods deal, that stuff was in there day one. Um, and, and that kind of thing. So it, it does fit in with the, the Amazon DNA to, to hide some kind of hamsters in the background going on there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, and sure enough, you are correct. Um, So then, uh, you know, barely get home from that show, uh, do a little bit of client work and then, uh, back on the plane to Los Angeles for shop.org.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, fun Jason fact, you truly are the retail geek. You met your wife for the first time seven years ago. Was that Dallas? It was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did she see you kick a – I remember that one vividly because we got to go to the um, the Cowboys Stadium and kick field goals. Did your wife, like, see you kick a field goal and say, that's the man I'm going to marry? Is that kind of how it went down? Uh,
1: so partly uh, I did go to that event with my now wife. Uh, she did, in fact, see me kick a field goal, uh, and it's highly unlikely uh, that that favorably influenced her in any way, uh, and it's equally <laughs> unlikely that she – She, at that point, realized that she would one day marry me. It took a little more work.
0: (laughs) A lot more field goals. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, it it is true that my right leg may be one of my my best uh, uh, assets, but it's still not that good.
0: Okay, well, congrats to you on uh, seven years meeting your uh, go, meeting your wife. Just shows you that, uh, you know, shop.org, anything can kind of happen when you're there.
1: Exactly. I remind people, you know, everyone talks about, you know, how important the networking is at these shows. And, uh, you know, I, I ser- certainly, agree with that.
0: <laughs> cool. So aside from, uh, relationship status changes, what was going on at shop.org this year?
1: Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting year, uh, a lot of changes in, uh, you know, what, what to me is like sort of the, one of the quintessential shows in our industry. Uh, so this show was in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles convention center um, the show is in Las Vegas next year. The show's always moved. Um, but after next year, uh, they have announced that it's permanently going to be in Los Angeles. So this is kind of the new home of the show. Uh, the Las Vegas Convention Center is, uh, is, is a great facility. It's very large. Um, and the whole downtown area around the convention center that used to not uh, have any amenities and, you know, frankly, wasn't very nice and arguably wasn't very safe has been heavily gentrified and it was a super interesting, vibrant uh, community that's kind of popped up. And, you know, most importantly for uh, the professional trade show attendees amongst us, there are a lot of good hotels now to stay out there. Um, so I liked the venue. Uh, the production values of the show were, were, you know, felt like they were like, you know, frankly an upgrade from past years. You know, I suspect that, you know, with some of the newer shows like shop talk out there that they've kind of raised the bar for everyone. And it felt like, like uh, a shop kind of followed suit. Um, The trade show floor is interesting because the, what they've now done is they've taken all the content and put it in like auditoriums all around the trade show floor. So the trade show floor is sort of the hub of the whole event. Um, They set up this really comfortable garden with like casual seating and free drinks in the middle of the trade show floor. So people could kind of loiter. Um, I know there was a lot of concern about like, noise pollution from from all the, the content being around the trade show floor. And I would say that stuff all worked out really well. Um, if anything, the convention center was so spacious that even though the, the booth space was apparently a sellout, it just felt really roomy. And on the good news, that felt really comfortable. On the bad news, it made the show feel less busy because the aisles just weren't as crowded as you, you might be used to from previous years. Um, but they did have this new section on the floor that I really like. Uh, it's sort of the technology pavilion. So it's a bunch of smaller, newer exhibitors. In many cases, a lot of, uh, uh, exhibitors from other countries. Um, and instead of big extravagant booths, they each had like pods in this area. And so there was a lot of the, the cool innovation stuff was in that section. Um, I think it was like an expanded version of something we saw at ref this year. Um, so I like to see that trend continue um, and then I did not get to catch all the content. I unfortunately had a pesky client that uh, wanted to meet in the middle of shop.org in another city. So I actually had to fly in for the last day. So I didn't get to catch all of the presenters. Um, Wednesday was a good day. Uh, the Adam Grant, who's a professor at NYU and wrote a great book called The Originals. He's actually a, um, an organizational psychologist that uh, sort of helps... Uh, figure out the most successful organizational structures. He gave a a really good presentation in the morning. Um and uh, you know, one one of the key themes that I uh that he talked about is uh how what a negative effect the wrong people in an organization or in the wrong role or on the wrong team can have in the organization. So he had this sort of quote that resonated with me. It's nice to have the right people on the bus, but it's much more important to keep the wrong people off the bus. Um, and he was, he was, you know, talking about how that's a common organizational mistake. I just liked his presentation because I really feel like, uh, organizational change management is one of the most important things for any, any retailer or brand in surviving digital disruption. And it's kind of one that people don't think about very much. So it's interesting to see an academic that's exclusively thinking about that. And then, uh, his, uh, the the presentation right before him is uh Scott Galloway, who's super well known in our industry, uh professor at NYU, uh do, uh very funny, does a lot of really uh, uh thought-provoking, controversial, humorous content. And so for the most part, I hate him because he's generally just like a better version of me. Um uh funnier, better looking, uh write more often kind of thing. Uh and uh, he has a book that just got published yesterday, um, and the the book is called The Four, and it, it talks a lot about the the these the sort of you know uh, four horsemen uh, that are in his mind: Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. Um, and he has this notion that each of them, you know, sort of appeals to a particular brain part, uh, part of the body. So uh, Google, you know, uh, appeals to the brain and is really associated with our rational self. Facebook is uh, you know associated with the heart and is associated with our emotional self uh, Amazon is associated with our the gut and really you know deals with our sustenance and needs um, and Apple has by far the best position uh, they're associated with our our reproductive organism uh, and uh, and is sort of associated with sex um, and so you know I think uh, uh, professor Galway like, basically would say Amazon or Apple is likely to be the most successful, most profitable of the four companies as a result of, of their, uh, you know, picking the right organ to go after. Um, but he had a lot of interesting content. Uh, if I have a criticism of, of, uh, professor Gaway, he repeats a lot of content and he's so popular that like most of his stuff is on YouTube. So I, you know, frankly, if you're a close follower of hers, I'm not sure of his. I'm not sure you saw a ton of new stuff at shop.org. Uh, but if you're not super familiar with him, uh, you know I think it all uh, is is uh, really interesting stuff that that uh, would definitely makes you think. I have already purchased his book and I'm looking forward to reading it. I got one book ahead of it in my queue, um, but uh, I was glad to see him there. And uh, you know we probably should break down and have him on the show at some point, even though I am kind of jealous of him.
0: <laughs> he seems to have it in for Amazon lately. Like, everything I read, he's kind of saying they don't pay enough taxes, they should be split up. Uh, it's kind of interesting. He seems to kind of definitely have a, an anti-Amazon bias in the last, like, month and a yeah. half or so.
1: So he did an interview with Kara Swisher on Recode a couple of weeks before Amazon bought Whole Foods, and he... He mentioned that Amazon could easily get in a brick and mortar that, you know, it'd be simple matter for them to buy someone like Whole Foods. And so he he's gotten a lot of credit for correctly predicting Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods, which I think is totally fair. Uh, again I follow him a lot closer than most people and I, I know he just makes a lot of unlikely predictions and some of them come true and he gets credit for those and as you could would expect a lot of them don't come true um, and most of us forget about those and you know one of the funny ones that he he sort of makes fun of himself is about two years ago he predicted that Amazon had reached its peak and was likely to fail um, and that their lack of stores was a uh, an Achilles heel that they couldn't overcome um, and so now in his presentations he he like shows a graph of their stock price in the last two years and he sort of marks that point when he predicted they'd fail and of course they're the fastest growing stock on on uh, the market since he predicted they would fail um, so I think that may make him slightly uh, you know uh, negative on Amazon but I think you know he I think his position is that there are bad things uh, for society about all four of these companies um, and that there, you know, are matters of great concern. Like he, You know, he he talks a lot about the uh, Facebook's influence on the election and that, you know, because Facebook's leadership is so young, they probably don't fully appreciate the threat that Russia is to us. Uh, I think he talks a lot about um, some of the downsides of all the power that's aggregated in Google. Um, I think he definitely likes Apple the most of any of these companies, and you're exactly right. He's talked a lot about... um, the fact that, you know, for every dollar of revenue Amazon generates, they employ half as many people as a brick-and-mortar retailer used to. So he thinks net-net they're really bad for jobs. And because, you know, they've been really successful in his mind at not earning a profit. Like, he definitely believes they're a very profitable company that manage their R&D to make sure that they don't book a significant profit every year, which I think he agrees is a smart play. Um, but that that's resulted in them not having to pay a lot of taxes. And so, you know, he shows a graph of... Amazon and Walmart over the last ten years, and Walmart has has paid uh, eighty four billion dollars in taxes in those ten years, and Amazon's paid one billion dollars in taxes. And of course, the market has rewarded Amazon, you know, with with vastly more market cap growth in those ten years than it has Walmart. And I, you know, I think you rightly points out, you know, there are some of these trends uh, that if they continue, you know, have some some uh, meaningful social impact. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that when I read his book. But, uh, you know, uh, he definitely is a guy with strong POVs and uh, and he, he generally has a uh, a pithy way of sharing them.
0: Cool. Any um, so that's get any broader trends you picked up on has this AI machine learning thing kind of have we gone past that or is that still everyone's uh, banging that drum?
1: Nope, that is the drum. Uh, by, by far, like the big trend that all the presenters are talking about at both shows that you know, obligatory got, had to get stamped on every booth at shop.org is the whole AI, deep learning, cognitive computing thing. Um, and you know, we've done a couple deep dives on that, so I'm not gonna rehash all that territory right now. It is a super important trend, um, but. Like, in my mind, a lot of its importance is getting diminished by the fact that it's just being treated as a a throwaway buzzword uh, by so many people in our industry for so many different purposes. Is that it on Uh, shop.org? Well, the one—and I did not get to see this live, but I got to watch a recording. Uh, So Mark Laurie did an interview. Mark does not do a ton of public speaking, and so that, like, was a great get for shop.org. So you get— Andy Dunn at uh, Recode. Andy reports to Mark. Mark reports to Doug McMillan, the the CEO of Walmart. Um, you know, which I imagine has to be a funny dynamic because you know Mark is is probably worth multi billion dollars between selling of Quizzy to Amazon and selling of Jet to Walmart. It was kind of the one year anniversary of the sale, uh, and it was just it was interesting to hear his his uh, POV on the acquisitions. He talked a lot about you know they all the acquisitions that he's made and ones that he's continuing to make kind of falling into two camps. So he would say he purchased a bunch of these companies uh, just for their merchandising chops and their access to product lines that Walmart didn't have access to. So you buy Shoe Dazzle to get more shoe expertise and to get more shoe lines, um, that the relationships with the vendors and and smart merchants – Uh, alone make that sort of an immediate ROI acquisition for Walmart. Um, And then he would talk about their acquisition of the digitally native brands like Bonobos and ModCloth being a much longer-term strategic play. And, uh, you know, this this goes to a a show that I think we're going to do next week about private label and Amazon private label in particular. Um, Walmart and most big retailers have a big strategy to – build more, um, important house brands that, you know, we used to call private label, but in some cases these far surpass private label. And it seems clear that, you know, part of Walmart's strategy to build this portfolio of valuable brands that consumer want that you can't get on Amazon, um, is through acquisition. And so, you know, he, I think he would categorize Mobcloth and Bonobos as, uh, the first of, of, uh, Presumably, more acquisitions in that space. So it was just kind of interesting to hear his framework for the acquisitions. Awesome.
0: Any other uh, shop.org updates? Uh,
1: I think in the time we have, that's probably going to have to cover it because I feel like uh, we, you know, it's been a busy just news month since we last did news. And I know there's a ton of uh, Amazon news and uh, uh, some some other industry news we want to cover. So let's jump into that. Yeah,
0: and it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without. Amazon News. News. Your margin is their opportunity. So the first big piece of Amazon News is uh, what is commonly referred to as HQ2. So uh, on September 7th, Amazon uh, just kind of randomly put out this announcement that they were accepting RFPs for their second headquarter city. And these RFPs encouraged cities to be aggressive. Uh, they had kind of till the end of October to submit their bids. Uh, and it also it was very detailed. It, de- it kind of listed what Amazon was looking for in a city and important things and, and how to highlight your city and whatnot. Um, and then that has really just dominated the, the 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 news cycle for for the last thirty days. so I'll actually be glad when they they make their announcement. so I'm kind of a little tired of talking about HQ two to be honest. Um, when it was announced, I kind of felt like Austin was a good one because the my logic is uh, Amazon the retail businesses of Amazon is relatively mature and really got a core density um, both in Seattle and then the m- most number of employees for retail are in the fulfillment centers. So it seems like if they're going to open another headquarters level, kind of a operation it's mostly going to be the, the newer generation, Amazon things. I'm sure there'll be some retail folks there, but it'll be the minority, let's say 10%. So if they're going to hire, uh, you know, uh, 8,000 people, maybe 800, will be kind of retail oriented people. And then the people that are in HQ around retail tend to be Buyers and, and developers of the site, uh, so then you're left with like who else is going to be in there and where I kind of come out is the Echo family, the AWS family, and these kinds of folks. And uh, when you look at Amazon's R and D budget, I, th- I think that ends up being a lot of engineers. So so I think you're gonna you know if I if I kind of play that out, Amazon near needs to be near an engineering hub and. Austin's a really good one. We have one here in Raleigh, Durham. Boston's another area, uh, and then kind of like that Carnegie Mellon quarter there. Uh, so, uh, but the Northeast has a lot of negatives. Uh, that so I don't really think it hits a lot of things they want to do there. So I kind of ended up with Austin. It kind of is, is where I think it is. Have, have you given a lot of thought to this one, Jason? Uh,
1: a little bit. Like there's been a lot of interesting talks since they launched this. If it's a scam, if they already have a, a location, and that and that this is just a big PR stunt that. Uh, That they ran, Um, so it'll it'll, uh, be interesting. The people speculating that all think that the the foregone conclusion is a different city, so they're not unanimous in that, which is funny. Um, Austin certainly seems like it's in the running. I jumped on Twitter early on in this, and I was you know trying to make a out of the box call. Uh, Houston had just been hit by the hurricane. And I I really think that whatever city wins is going to have to pay a fortune in economic development funds to Amazon to get them there. So there's going to be huge concessions. Amazon's not going to pay any property taxes for for 20 years and whatever this headquarters is. And it's it's frankly probably going to be an economically bad deal for whatever city does it. Um, It's a little bit like bidding for the Olympics. Um, and so it has to be a city that has a bunch of money to waste on that. And I, and from that criteria, I think Austin might struggle to come up with a package. And it occurred to me, uh, Houston's going to get a bunch of federal money. They're going to need to rebuild the whole city. Uh, they have proximity to a lot of the same, uh, universities that Austin does. And so I thought, Hey, it could be interesting. That could be a, a way, you know, a great PR move for Amazon to help, uh, rebuild the, you know, the hurricane damaged city in, in uh, Houston. Um, I haven't heard anyone else jump on that bandwagon. So if I'm, if I'm right, uh, that'll be great. But the lack of people that agree with me has me a little nervous about that prediction. Um, you know, the, the sort of emotional favorite for me would be, you know, if they really want to win the PR battle, they ought to go to Detroit and revitalize Detroit and Detroit actually does meet a bunch of their, their criteria. Um so it, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Like, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Detroit has enough engineering people there. So we'll see.
1: Uh, University of Michigan, though. Yeah. Uh, so I did uh, see some interesting uh, press releases about a potential new Amazon device. Um, which was a, a wearable. Um, they were glasses uh, that had uh, Amazon Alexa built into them. And so, the when you first see oh uh, wearable glasses, you think about a, a heads up display and Google Glass and all that. It was actually the glasses were a convenient way to deliver the earbuds to your ear. And the idea was to have a uh, you know persistent access to this always on uh, digital assistant in Alexa. And so it'll it'll be interesting to. Uh, to see if that product ever meets the light of day uh as we record this uh Google just just uh made their big announcements for the new pixel phone, and one of the accessories they announced was a set of earbuds uh that are specifically designed to put the Google assistant in your ear at all times so it seems like like that uh could be an interesting battleground uh of uh you know ear based uh personal assistance
0: yeah and um that's my big ask. Uh, I know Jeff is listening. So, uh, Mr. Bezos, the big ask I have for a new platform for echo Alexa is uh wireless earbuds. So I have AirPods and the Siri interface is just terrible. I can never get it to play music on Spotify or anything else, but Apple music. Um, so would love for you guys to solve that for me. Uh, and then, uh, one of the ones I was excited about. Uh, so, at Channelvisor over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of these folks that sell refurbished product, and there's, you know, there's a big set of consumers that love the option to trade down to this kind of product that has been, uh, you know, certified that it is it has is, uh, been gone through a process usually by the manufacturer certified that it's like new and and it has a warranty uh, also known as refurbished. So Amazon's had kind of a weird policy on this. They kind of let it, you do it, but then they don't give you the tools as that kind of seller to be successful and ends up not really meeting the customer's kind of needs. So um, they announced a a new kind of marketplace area called renewed. And that that's exciting because I think that's a really big area Amazon hasn't nailed yet, and, and it's going to be good for a lot of the the larger sellers to do that. Uh, this is this is kind of like super not sexy, but it's really important uh, because this is where Amazon is really kind of. Dominating everyone, and that's fulfillment center build-out. So just kind of looking at some that we haven't talked about on the show quickly In uh, just starting kind of towards the end of August. So August 28th, they announced a million-square-foot uh, facility in Oregon in the Salem area. And then uh, they also, at the, about the same time, Ohio. So Oregon and Ohio, uh, and those are about a million each. Uh, and then they are doing their first fulfillment center in New York, and that's going to be in Staten Island, and that's 855,000 square feet. Uh, then on the 14th of September, they announced Michigan with a million. Uh, I think that's our third or fourth in Michigan. And then in Oregon, then they—it's uh, kind of funny. Like literally twenty days after they announced the second fulfillment center in Oregon, they announced the third, and this mm-hmm. one's going to be in Portland, and it's going to be a million square feet. So something's going on in Oregon. So, so there's there's a lot of Amazon love in Oregon right now. Um, they're building fulfillment centers as fast as they can, just kind of find land. Um, and then the, it's then kind of in that vein. On the eighteenth, they announced yet another Ohio one. This one's in Euclid. So um, it was kind of smaller. It was 600,000 square feet, which is kind of a, you know, for, by Amazon standards, it's a micro-fulfillment center. That must have been some function of the land. I, I checked, and it's still a normal FC. It's not a sortation center or prime now or anything like that. Um, the other one is, and um, a Wall Street analyst was kind of talking about the India e-commerce market and uh, just kind of dropped that amazon now has 40 fulfillment centers in india this is a surprise to me because i don't think they've announced a lot of new fulfillment centers in india that i've seen um and this was pretty well researched i thought they had like more like 10 so that was a little surprising to me um i'm pretty sure this analyst would not say that without having fact checked it uh six ways uh so i think that's a new data point that's pretty interesting that that indicates that the the level of investment you know, Amazon's making in India, these things are a hundred million bucks to build out. So that, that kind of feels like, you know, kind of a surprise three to $4 billion there, uh, which for Amazon's effectively nothing, but, um, you know, pretty interesting that, that India is really seeing such a big ramp up as well.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I, I wonder, um, is there a way to make money on the stock market? I feel like tons of investors forget that Amazon's going to spend a fortune every Q, Three opening a bunch of fulfillment centers to get ready for the the holiday season, and it just seems like there's always that's always going to be a negative profits quarter for them as they as they spend all this capex on these fulfillment centers, and I'm always surprised by people being surprised by it.
0: Yeah, and what it does is it kind of like so all these ones that are announced, they'll kind of accrue. And they won't hit the PL until they launch, they open. Is my understanding how the accounting works? And then to your point, it's like they take this really big non cash hit, but they've they've been doling out the cash over time, um, and it will create this kind of you know negative accounting thing on their their typical EBITDA and that kind of stuff. This is one of the reasons uh, they really like to focus on free cash flow, um, and uh, versus because you know cash cash is cash, and accounting rules don't change the cash coming in and going out, and so. Uh, when you're building this many fulfillment centers, you can imagine that that
1: you
0: know, those accounting rules really start to add up on you.
1: Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Uh, I maybe should have mentioned in the shop.org announcement that uh, or recap that there was a surprise event that Amazon put on and they announced a bunch of new Alexa devices. And the first thing I found interesting about that was unlike uh, Apple or Google that like you know announced the event several weeks in advance and build up a lot of anticipation. As far as I know, Amazon didn't give anyone any warning. They sent out an email in the morning saying, "Hey, we're having a press event in Seattle in four hours," um, which which means you know there's a bunch of reporters that now have to live in Seattle. <laughs> um, and they they announced a, a a significant refresh of the whole Alexa line, and so we uh, you know mostly driving costs down. So uh, they they took what used to be the base. Alexa and they shave $50 off of that. They improve the speaker. They improve the aesthetics a little bit. Um, they, they put a new product in the line at the, the price of the old Alexa that now includes a, a home hub. So the ability to control a lot of home automation devices without a third party hub. And so what that means is um, you, you don't even need the Phillips Hue light kit. You can just buy individual bulbs and you can control them direct from your Alexa and so, you know, clearly one of the things Amazon has has noticed is uh, that setting up the configuring home automation is still too difficult, and plugging in all and getting interoperability between all these products is difficult. So it seems like they're trying to address that problem directly um, and make it just easier to onboard new products and add new products to your smart home. So that'll be interesting. And then uh, the goofiest product that they launched in this thing is a set of buttons, um, that are designed for family games. And I think particularly designed for like a version of, of, uh, trivia and jeopardy that, that, uh, you can play on the Alexa where each family member has a button and you hit your particular button to buzz in and get a chance to, to answer a question that Alexa asks. So, uh, like I thought it was goofy, but I'm sure I'll order a set of buttons.
0: I'm surprised you haven't pre-ordered this. yeah
1: And I guess I forgot one important one. Uh I have pre-ordered some of the products, and to be honest, I can't even remember which ones I pre-ordered. Uh there's a new version of the Echo Dot that has a screen on it. Um and this looks like it's predominantly made to work as an alarm clock. So um, you know, it's a a, a small form factor device with a smaller screen than the the echo show and it seems like much better ergonomics and it's designed to sit next to your bed and you know it can have a persistent clock face and do all these different things um i don't know about you i know we both have a bunch of echoes in our house the you know my wife and i each have a clock next to our side of the bed like the last thing i'd want to do is add two more echoes to my bedroom and i feel like they'd all be competing to hear our commands
0: yeah yeah that's a lot of echoes The Did you see that um, another uh, car OEM added Alexa, the BMW? uh, They're going to have an Alexa capability.
1: Yeah, and uh, that seems like a pretty cool car to have the Alexa in. Uh, You know, voice interface makes sense in a lot of places. Um, But for sure, uh, you know, one of the places it makes the most sense is in the car. Cars have had uh, natural language interfaces for a while, and they all have hugely sucked. Um, And so, you know seems like a pretty, uh, big competitive advantage for, for BMW to have what everyone, you know, feels like is the, you know, furthest along, uh, digital personal assistant and the best natural language interface in their vehicles. Uh, you know, the flip side is if you're any retailer other than, than Amazon, you know, it it sure sucks to keep seeing Echo win all these OEM deals. Um, you know, if anyone ever needs to do any uh, add any products to their shopping list, or do any auto reordering, or any of those kinds of things while they're driving, uh, you know, Amazon's certainly going to be in pull position for all the all those orders, which is not good news if you're Kroger or Walmart or Target or any of those guys.
0: Yeah, probably the most controversial Amazon news uh, here recently was Kohl's announcing that they're going to take Amazon returns. About half the folks I kind of saw comment on it said, this is genius. This is going to drive foot traffic to Kohl's. You know, people come into Kohl's, they'll drop off their Amazon returns and they'll shop and that that's uh, a genius thing. The other half said, this is a deal with the devil. They are going to, you know, the Coles is essentially paying to to run Amazon return centers. Where, where do you fall out on that one? Uh,
1: I think it's really smart. Um, and the reason I say that is, like, there's all kinds of opportunities to partner with Amazon. They're a frenemy, and um, almost always there's some huge downside to partnering with Amazon. You're exposing them to a bunch of data that they're going to use to compete with you. Uh, you're giving them a bunch of revenue that they're going to use to compete with you. You know, all these frenemy arrangements, you know, by definition, have have something in it that's pretty unappetizing. Um, but the Kohl's deal, as far as I can tell, is super one-sided. Uh, Kohl's isn't giving up any data about their customers. They're not sharing anything proprietary with Amazon. Um, they're creating a reason for a bunch of, of digital shoppers to walk into a Kohl's store during holiday season, and there's going to be an opportunity for serendipitous discovery there. Um, it just seems like... You know, one one of the the most favorable deals I've seen someone do with Amazon in quite a while. So I I thought it was smart. What 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 do you see as the potential downside?
0: Uh, well, it's going to take up room in the store. So I imagine there's going to be an Amazon locker kind of a thing. So so it's not entirely clear how many how it's going to be implemented. So, uh, you know, if it's an Amazon locker, then that's essentially having a big Amazon ad in your store. Um. And then who's to say that people can't order stuff and pick it up there. Um, so that, I don't know. So there's, there's a trade off there and if you have to staff it, that's even kind of a little stranger. So I don't yeah. know. We'll see.
1: I don't think we've yeah. seen those details yet. So that's fair enough. Uh, it's funny when I saw, uh, if you shop at Kohl's um, so they set up a bunch of extra customer service centers uh, during holidays so that, you know, you can do returns and, and uh, have faster checkout and, yeah um, you know things like that. And so I just sort of assumed that that would be an extra function you could do at any of those return terminals in the in the store at Holiday would be to return your Amazon packages. Yeah, could be. We'll see. Uh it's been a little uh, over a month since uh, Amazon took over Whole Foods and we're starting to see some interesting recaps on how that's played out. Um, you know, Everyone, of course, uh, made a lot of buzz when it looked like Amazon was lowering a lot of prices um, on day one when they took that over. And, you know, Amazon got a huge amount of PR credit for that, which, uh, you know, probably uh, negatively impacted market cap on a bunch of other grocery stores. Um, But it's been interesting. We're now starting to see some uh, evidence that that those price reductions dramatically improved traffic in the stores and they drove a bunch more bodies into the store. Uh, we certainly saw evidence that they're, they're selling a lot of the Amazon private label 365 on the Amazon platform and may have even sold out of a bunch of problem products and created some supply chain problems. Um, but I've also seen some interesting analysis that, that all of the price cuts early on were pretty strategic and that a month in, it doesn't look like it's really cheaper to shop for a basket of a hundred items at Amazon at whole foods, than it was before the acquisition. And so, you know, while they've lowered some, some prices, they, they actually raised some other prices. um, And that, you know, it, it looked a lot more like a perception change than a fundamental pricing strategy change.
0: Yeah. The um, one of the, more interesting reports was from Foursquare, where they actually kind of can measure store traffic if they look at, at check trends. and they they believe that foot traffic was up twenty five percent since the acquisition. So, whatever they're doing seems to be driving more people into the stores, which which is uh, I think the, the desired goal there.
1: Yeah, I was also surprised. You know, day one they did something really impressive to me. They had Echo displays in all the stores, which is non trivial to execute. Uh, but a month in it looks like a bunch of those displays were even temporary and so it, it does not appear that they're going to be permanently merchandising Alexa in all the Whole Food stores at least not yet.
0: There's a bunch of interesting m so let's just kind of go through this and, and talk about it kind of in a package. So Walmart acquired Parcel, uh, Plated was acquired by Albertsons, Ikea acquired TaskRabbit uh, and uh, you know that that's kind of interesting there's kind of a Definitely a delivery on-demand theme there. What do what do you think about those acquisitions?
1: Yeah, I mean they they all certainly make sense. Uh, Walmart had already announced that they were looking to do same-day deliveries in New York. I think that's primarily for Jet, and so Parcel is a you know presumably the vehicle they'll use to do that. Um, You know, meal kits are a a exploding category in in uh, grocery. Home delivery of meal kits has a bunch of cost problems, as we've seen in uh, uh, Blue Apron. So so di- distributing them through, uh, you know, pickup in grocery store makes a lot of sense. So I thought that was an interesting play by Albertsons. And then the TaskRabbit one is kind of most interesting. Uh, you know, one of the big, big impediments to IKEA stuff is IKEA's are in inconvenient locations with giant parking lots. Um and you know, it's often not not appealing to drive out to an IKEA and then you get something that you have to assemble at home. And so I, I don't know what percentage of TaskRabbit uh tasks are actually buying and assembling IKEA furniture. Um, but you know, it potentially addresses like, you know, a pretty big impediment to IKEA expanding their market. So that could be really clever.
0: Yeah. And speaking of M&A, we're celebrating the one year anniversary of Jet and Walmart. So congrats to all those guys. Uh, And when this happened, there was, uh, uh, you know, kind of like the the Kohl's return thing. There was uh, about half the folks thought this was genius and other half thought this is going to fail. This marketplace is tiny. Walmart's just going to, you know, not be able to grow it. And. You know, I, I think uh, the results look promising so far. So certainly the stock like stock market likes it. So uh, Walmart's stock has reacted really well over that that period. Um, and then, you know, e-commerce has grown, I think, the last quarter they announced was about 63% growth. So, you know, that, that's uh, all pretty good news. Uh, do you think it was a – is it time to call it a success?
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure that uh, one year is a short enough time to – to make that determination on a $3 billion acquisition. But I, I certainly think the first year was successful. Um, it clearly drove some cultural change at Walmart. They did a bunch of other acquisitions that it's doubtful they would have done without Mark Lorey being there. So that, that certainly seems to add a lot of value. Uh, you know, Walmart just needed a good story uh, to talk to the market about how they're competing with Amazon. And the Jet acquisition certainly gave them that. Um, and then they've had this terrific performance. And I do think some of that is definitely related to, to Mark and the new team and the directions they're setting. Uh, But I also think a lot of that growth is coming from Walmart's expansion in a digital grocery, which is probably something that was underway before Mark got there. And so I'm not sure you can attribute all of the phenomenal e-commerce growth Walmart's had in the last year uh, to jet. Um, But the, the, the progress that they've made that in many ways is most impressive to me is in the year that, that since that acquisition, um, they've expanded from like 10 million SKUs online to 57 million SKUs online, um, which is, uh, largely through their marketplace, which I know, uh, you know something about, but that seemed like, uh, you know, a pretty significant change and has apparently driven a lot of their successes, the larger assortment and the, the shift to focus on everyday essentials. So, add all that up, and uh, I certainly don't think anyone has indigestion about the acquisition at, at Walmart at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of the selection strategy, and I think Mark, uh, you, know, you you mentioned it at the top of the show from the shop.org org interview. Uh, acquiring those brands, a lot of people look at that like it's crazy, but I think if you get access to anything that you can make exclusive, like like the ModCloth stuff or Bonobos or any of those kinds of things. Um, that's a huge win. We're in this kind of selection battle, and, and I think Mark clearly uh, understands that and is starting to play the game kind of at the same level Amazon has been. So I think it's going to be fun to watch.
1: For uh, sure. And speaking of that, there was some new news like just this week, which was uh, the Jet is launching its own private label grocery brand.
0: Yeah, and this, this uh so kind of a little teaser here. Private label is a huge topic. Uh a lot of this kicked off. Mary Meeker had this presentation that she does every year and she talked about um private label in the context of amazon and showed the batteries uh amazon's private label battery has kind of taken over as the number one spot and so since that and kind of the spring private label has really flared up and we're going to do a deep dive in our next episode so uh definitely stay tuned for that uh that topic will be specific to the amazon private label offerings so for as as it relates to jet do you think that's a smart uh plan or what what's going on there
1: uh, I think it's a really smart plan for all of Walmart to um, own some successful private labels and I think relative to some of their competition that's been one of the area that they uh, areas that they haven't made as much progress as they'd like so uh, I, I certainly you know am interested to see them try like I don't know enough about the program to know the nuances of brand is it actually branded jet or is it just something they're testing in jet first and Could eventually go to Walmart. Like, I think those are all going to be interesting things, things to watch. Uh, But I certainly think in the long run, Walmart and Jet need to own some exclusive brands. Uh, And, uh, you know, the CPG space um, is certainly going to get a lot more uh, uh, competitive before it's all said and done.
0: Yeah, and I, I know we're getting tight on time, so we'll go into kind of the lightning round. Um, the holiday forecaster coming out, NRF always does it at org, and they said all in it's going to be 36 to 4% uh, this holiday, which – uh, seems to be pretty darn bullish, uh, and then I think in that call it it implies that non let 's see they call it non store commerce is like their kind of coded word for e commerce these days uh, I prefer e commerce uh, and I think they said fifteen percent for the holiday period uh p w c is out with theirs, and they uh, are showing that let 's see didn 't put a number they said people are going to spend six percent more this year than they did last year. And I don't know if that means like the forecast is 6% because, you know, kind of like, I don't, I guess you could assume more people will shop or less people shop and, and that would vary that number. Um, so, uh, and then uh, not like around 90% said they're going to shop in stores. So I guess that makes sense with about 10 to 12% of sales online. So uh, all good. But then I guess 84% said they'll also shop online. So I guess this proves omni channel is a thing.
1: I think you might be right. I think it is a thing. Uh yeah, I feel like a number of the holiday forecasts have come in and for stores, they're all in that like three and a half to four percent. Um and then, you know, if e-com is fifteen percent, like I'm sort of Ebenezer or scrooge on these things. In a way it's a silly thing to predict because the the growth is so dependent on the pricing and the promotions. Like you can grow much bigger by by selling stuff cheaper and losing more money. Um, and so predicting the growth without also predicting the the promotion levels is not super useful to me. Um, but these guys are all burdened by like data and scientific methodologies and, you know, advanced mathematics and all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't have any of that stuff. And so to me, it seems like I actually don't think our holiday season is going to be as rosy as these guys are all painting. Like I think if we get to 4% growth in all of retail – It'll be because it was a hugely promotional and unprofitable holiday period. I think we just have way less stores, and so there's going to be less stuff in the pipeline, which means manufacturers are going to have sold less stuff through. I certainly don't think it's a, going to be a bad holiday season and you know any hugely negative comps. Um, but 4% feels uh, a little rosy to me, and I actually think the e-com number could be higher. Um, but a huge caveat there is... Even if it's 15%, um, you know, Walmart's grown 60% the last two quarters. A lot of that's from grocery, and grocery is opening super fast at Walmart, so they're going to have way more grocery for this holiday. Uh, so they they could do 60% for this holiday, and Amazon's going to do 25 or 30% for this holiday, which essentially means the rest of e-commerce is down if the whole industry only grows
0: 15%. Yeah, yeah, I think... I'm, I'm bullish on e-commerce. I, I think we're going to see kind of a high teens number. Um, I think it's going to really be a year of acceleration on that. Um, one controversial, speaking of promotions, promotion that's out there is the Marketplace Wish, and this is the marketplace that focuses on bringing really super cheap Chinese goods into the U.S. Um, they announced a $30 million NBA sponsorship, and uh, a lot of the NBA jerseys now feature the Wish logo. So it'll be interesting to see if that that uh, it's a very kind of a, you know, in-your-face kind of promotion for an e-commerce company that we haven't seen before.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense because when I'm watching basketball, uh, something that happens to me all the time is I suddenly realize I need a particular color fidget spinner in only six weeks. And so I think now it's going to remind me where I could get that. You have an emergency fidget spinner. <laughs> a six-week emergency <laughs> in fidget In six spinner. weeks, <laughs> I, uh, uh, no, I think it's totally interesting that they're making the investment and, and like, you know, by a lot of metrics, Wish is making, uh, you know, is is a, is a meaningful player. Like I I do, I'm not a big fan of the customer experience of six week delivery. I think that like, has kind of uh, limited appeal um, in, in this world in which we're, we're getting two minute delivery from, from our friends at Amazon. Uh, but I think that's probably a great final word. Um, luckily, I didn't invite anyone from wish to have a counter uh, perspective. And we have used all our allotted time. Uh, so hopefully uh, listeners were able to stick with us through the fire hose treatment and got some interesting stuff. Um, as always, we'd encourage you to continue the dialogue on Facebook. Uh, if you disagree with any of our positions, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, if there's anything we didn't cover that you'd like to hear about, uh, suggestions are always appreciated. Of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please. Uh, We'd, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, if you hated the show, uh, you know, don't feel it necessary to leave a review at all. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Yeah, if you hated the show, you can call Jason on his home phone number, which is just kidding. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and happy commerce.